Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. Mike McCabe, thanks for joining the show. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, absolutely. Great to great to see you via computer here, Michael. Yes. So I've been looking forward to this since uh, more or less uh, we met, and we met because you were making a custom pair of skis for me that were actually a gift from a buddy of mine, a, a wedding present. And uh, it's inspired me to continue to look at skis as a wedding present, which was a, a new concept for me, but uh, it was awesome. Nice. Yeah, no, it's a, that's, it's a hard wedding present to beat right there. Set the bar pretty darn high. For sure. Yeah. And it was, it's always exciting to, to, you know, have conversations and take people through the process that weren't necessarily expecting something like that and, and have such a positive result like you did. So it's, it's, uh, you know, one of the many ways that we grow our business and just keep people excited about what we're offering here rather than just your buy skis off the shelf approach that most people are doing. Yeah, absolutely. So you are CEO and owner of Folsom Skis, and it's a custom ski outfit based here in Denver, Colorado. Would love to hear how you got into that business. Yeah. So we're coming up on our, geez, I guess, 13th year in business. Actually, I'm one of the co-founders. So I started this business with another individual all the way back in 2008, I guess, rewind a little bit previous to that, really 2006 is when, when Jordan and I met in 2006, you know, he had a lot of the general business plan put together, general strategy, some funding, and just was lacking kind of the, the network and the, the ski building know-how. So once I was inserted into, you know, that kind of piece of the pie, him and I really started building a whole bunch of different types of prototypes and, and testing all kinds of different manufacturing styles right in his garage based on Folsom Street in Boulder. Uh, the ongoing joke that him and I always had was that his first garage that we kind of built our first shop in had twice as much power pulled to it in, than his actual house uh, to service all the equipment that we had sitting in there. So fast forward a couple of years uh, after building hundreds of prototypes and really you know establishing how to build this really cool product line that we were trying to bring to market and really refining the strategy of, of having a custom product like this. We launched in November of 2008. <laughs> so we chose a somewhat complex time to uh, bring the company to market and have since continued to run the company. Him and I ran it together for a number of years. And then I took it completely over in 2010 and have uh, added into the team and growing the business into my now current facility in Denver, which is just about to grow to 7,500 square feet. So uh, some humble beginnings in an 800 square foot garage to, you know, a nearly 8,000 square foot, pretty established manufacturing facility right here in That's Denver. That's awesome. Well, lots of big companies got started in garages. Yeah. So you got introduced to sort of the business of making skis because you were a pro skier before that, right? Correct. So that's actually how Jordan and I met was through a kind of a, a network of folks in Boulder. And I had made my name for myself as a, a rather large individual that was skiing on the professional free ride circuit and was having a lot of longevity issues with skis. Just, you know, things were just not built very well. And I was breaking them in half rather quickly. You know, and he had developed some product and thought he had a better you know, approach to this. And so with my manufacturing background and skiing prowess, we were able to really come in and start doing a better job right here in North America. So you also had a manufacturing background. Correct. So kind of a, just a weird thing that I grew up with in my life. I just happened to really have a full-time job at a very early age. I started working for uh, injection molding plastics facility when I was 14 years old and was around a lot of CAD cam and tooling work from a very young age. 
And I ended up working for their sister company for quite some time through my teens and early 20s, actually, which was a, a aviation company building replacement pieces for unmanned drones, aerobatic airplanes, things of that nature. So we were doing like removing heavy aluminum, heavy steel parts and replacing them with carbon fiber spindles, uh, fiberglass spindles, stuff like that. Uh, so I got a whole bunch of composite background there. And then uh, I also was building homes through my college years. So just had a very hands-on kind of general manufacturing approach to understanding how everything's put together. So kind of a, a cool blend to be able to take my passion and, and really dissect the equipment that I'm using and, and truly start to play with it and build it. That's awesome. So were you doing all of that while also being a professional skier? Yes. Yep. Sure was. And, you know, trying to, to stay attentive to my schooling as well. So my professional ski career was pretty short, you know, really like around three and a half, four years that I really took it very seriously. And that was almost entirely focused around college. So it wasn't sanctioned by the school either. So it wasn't an NCAA sanctions sport, which added a ton of complications to, you know, just getting professors to agree with my travel schedules and stuff of that nature. And, you know, honestly working 30 to 20 to 30 hours a week on top of that as well. Wow. And then traveling around the country, around the world doing that? Yep. All around the world. So I was doing specifically the IFSA big mountain freeride tour which has got a couple North American stops, you know, lower 48, and then a couple up in Canada. And then it had a couple stops down actually in South America during the summer months and uh, two stops in Europe. Very cool. And was the, you mentioned it was a, a little on the shorter side, three and a half, four years. Was that injury driven or did you just uh, decide to go in a different direction at some point? So honestly, the sector that I chose to focus on is it's got a big pool of talent. A lot of people that are really, you know, wanting to do this style of skiing. And there's unfortunately not much of a way to make a real living at it. So, you know, the, the percentage of guys that can actually carry on for a decent career through this is so, so small. I unfortunately was pretty middle of the pack, <laughs> you know, I, I had my shining moments, but I was pretty middle of the pack and I identified rather quickly that, you know, the, the injury versus longevity versus like actual ability to turn this into a real, real career was pretty impossible. And I honestly became a little bit more interested in the product side anyway. That was the biggest catalyst to my transition out was Folsom skis. When you started making skis, did you know immediately, like, this is what I want to do? I did. So going through college, you know, that wasn't my major or train of thought, even kind of. I studied ecology and evolutionary biology, was starting to take the rest of the courses that I would need to actually enter my MCATs and actually go to medical school. Uh, and I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, uh, which I probably would have done fine there, but that, you know, was just something that I was really hyper-focused on at the moment. And when this presented itself and I really got to get hands-on and, and start working with this medium and building skis and, and just seeing how much better it really was than what was existing on the market, it was a very quick transition of like stiff arm, any kind of medical school thoughts. Didn't even take the MCATs. I was like, I'm done. I'm doing this where I'm all. Was that a tough decision? It wasn't really. I mean, it was right as I was coming out of college. So I graduated in 07 and, you know, it was just perfect in the transition time of already kind of being, you know, at my threshold of, I don't want to go just jump right back into school right now. I was kind of at odds with that as well as just, you know, a, a pretty large debt structure of going back into med school and you know, starting my career relatively late after I got through all that stuff. And, you know, I, I, I just was having some internal dialogue that was not thrilled about that idea. And when about, I kind of gave it a four-year window and said, okay, you know, let's see how this goes in four years. If in four years, you're not loving it, and, you know, you're not in it for the right reasons. You're not, you know, happy, healthy, and, and, and moving in the right direction. And let's reevaluate. Well, clearly you were, you were all those things because uh, you're still running it today. 
so what's maybe it's a trade secret but what was the big difference making skis that that held up when you're jumping off of cliffs <laughs> so unfortunately and this is not just a, a very common thing to to know is the overwhelming majority of skis that are built and manufactured today are built overseas you know, mostly in china and their models are are volume plays so you know, these big companies are building hundreds of thousands of skis every single season, not to say that they're not you know, capable of building some very good product, but oftentimes when you get to that scale, you know, your material choices, your overall ability to manufacture a fantastic, you know, long lasting, precisely built ski is just, you know, your bottom line decisions are trumping you know the overall quality and somebody who's six foot two 220 pounds and applying a lot of pressures to skis can show that you know fatigue in that ski much quicker than most and so when i got into it and started actually using you know full length hardwoods and you know more precise molding methods and really just kind of taking that that quality over quantity approach to it it was just immediately obvious, you know, as, as, as soon as I stood on these skis, I was like, wow, not only do they feel better, but I got a whole season out of this ski where I would have been through 15 to my previous sponsor in years past, which that, that, that's a big metric. Like not a lot of people believe it, but if you're in the industry and, you know, really using these, these skis hard, that's the true tell for what kind of warranty ratios you're going to see in the, in the product. And I, you know, I'm not going to name names because, you know, I, I never like to pull any kind of other brands through the mud, but there's a lot of companies out there that it's like every other week they're replacing people's skis that are on their team because they're broken, you know, and, that, and it honestly got in my head too. It started making me ski more poorly because I was constantly thinking I was in danger of the product breaking in a no fall situation, which, you know, ultimately is a, a big no, no. <laughs> <laughs> standing For on top sure. of some stuff where you need your, your your product to work and it falls apart and you wind up falling because of it not okay and so it shook me up and this transition it was it was pretty wild and it was wild to bring my network of other professional skiers into it as well which it wasn't really by design but most of my friends are all bigger stronger skiers your your average skier that really makes it in the in the ski world is like five eight 140 pounds and all my buddies are over six, over 200. And so we were just known as the bruisers beating stuff up. And, uh, you know, the minute I brought everybody kind of onto the team and development side of things, everybody was like, whoa, like, how are you achieving this? How are you making things work so much better and last so much longer? And you know, just truly the function of, of quality over quantity. Very cool. So Mike, I would imagine that the average skier probably isn't breaking 15 pairs of skis in a season. How did the improvements that you made in the skis wind up translating to the maybe average or even higher end ski demographic that, that you might be catering to now? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, durability certainly isn't the only attribute that really make these things shine. I think to speak real specifically to your average skier is they're not nearly as good as a professional skier. That's, you know, clear. And expert skiers can kind of make everything work for them. Sure, having a, a less durable product can kind of shake them up and, you know, maybe put them in a bad spot if they're on a trip and they actually don't have skis to ski on because they broke them, which I hate to say it, that actually happens quite often to these guys. But, you know, people that are skiing less and, you know, the, the cost of skiing, not only from a monetary, but time sense is that much more expensive for your average consumer they want to be standing on the right thing that really makes their days that much better. And so with a whole custom approach that we're doing here, it's, it's truly making small, meaningful changes that are making these skiers more comfortable, quicker, giving them more energy at the end of the day, because they're not fighting the skis, really just optimizing, you know, this relatively expensive sport. And we saw that early on. That's kind of one of the things that from a business perspective, I really try to advertise as best as I can that like this isn't just for expert skiers. Actually, expert skiers are like served well from this, but not nearly as much as an intermediate or even somebody kind of, you know, in that beginner to intermediate phase. They can just have breakthrough experiences that much quicker. 
and just truly be that much more comfortable on a product for that much longer. Uh, and to speak back to the durability side of things, getting comfortable with something and knowing it's there and, and, you know, having a predictable product under your feet for years rather than a season is a big leg up for these, these individuals. Uh, and we found that with the overwhelming majority of our clients is our skis don't wear out. They just add in with different types of skis, you know, like, well, now I've got this carving ski that's going to last me a decade but now I need like a more specific, you know, all mountain ski or more specific touring ski or, or whatever it may be. So we found that those changes are, are resonating with that, that general consumer in a pretty big way. Well, that's, that's certainly uh, what I've found thus far on my skis. So I'm loving them. And you launched Folsom really into the great recession and so I would imagine that that was a, a tough time to be selling luxury recreational items. What was that like? And how'd you make it through that period of time? I mean, it was, it was tough. You know, we, we literally launched November, like right when everything happened, we were right on top of that. So on top of that, I had, you know, I'm fresh out of college, student loans, all that good stuff. It was stressful as heck from a financial side, but we had a, a good product we had a great like kind of small network that we knew would support us well up front. And so we really just leaned into that. We really leaned into the local network. We really just wanted to, to kind of reel in the, the big marketing efforts and just really focus on the grassroots stuff. So the first four years were rocky, like tough, you know, the, one of the, the hardest things to overcome in the ski industry and a lot of outdoor sports industry is just how, unique consumers buying habits are and how loyal they become to brands for whatever reason, you know, their dad could have loved K2 skis and they grew up on K2 skis. So they're going to blindly buy K2 skis for their entire ski, you know, career. That's a very common thing. So for us to be a brand new brand entering the market in 2008 was tough. <laughs> so we had to, we had to spin the wheels hard. We had to get people in our small little factory, show them exactly what we were doing and really give that personalized experience that we've continued on to today. You know, that said, it was, it was a lot of personal hardship as well. You know, I was fresh out of college. I didn't know any better on really what I needed to have a suitable living. So, you know, I was, I was living that college life well after college, eating ramen, you know, fighting to get gas in the truck sort of thing. And um, you know, luckily it all panned out, but <laughs> there were a couple pretty tough years there where, you know, it, you're, you're barely check to check and, uh, you know, considering moving into our shop. Literally. Yeah. Wow. It's a notoriously tough industry where you've seen a lot of these, uh, big ski brands go through bankruptcies, get bought out of them a few different times. How are the dynamics different for a smaller operator like yourself versus maybe some of the, like the systemic issues that, that the larger operators see? So the larger operators or operators like, you know, you know, your Rosignols, your Atomics, your K2s, your really, really big brands. There's really only a handful of them. You hit the nail on the head. They go through these boom bust cycles and they inherently go through bankruptcy. And there's a lot of things that tie into each individual account on that. But overwhelmingly, what it is, is what I've coined is the race to the bottom with that product. So they bring the product to market and they try to do it as cheap as they can and oversaturate it. And so they'll have one or two seasons of great success with this product. And then all of a sudden they'll kill their entire market because they've just oversold it, you know, and, and done it too cheaply already. And then they're going back into their manufacturing cycles and they're reproducing the same amount every single year. And then they get stuck in this, uh, this sales cycle where they can't sell any new product for actual full pop. And so price integrity is fatigued. They're also just pumping tons and tons and tons of dollars into marketing and big name skiers, you know, falls in the same, same vein as marketing. Uh, and just, you know, really spending quite recklessly in that regard. And then all of a sudden, you know, they start looking at their bottom line and usually the parent company is just like, well, ax them, you know, they're, they're just bottom line decisions there. And it's not often that they're independently owned. Most of them are owned by a couple giant parent companies. 
and they just get kind of passed around as they either start doing better or failing. So I'm not relegated to that even kind of. We're completely independent. We It's been something that I've you know, gotten close to doing, but have never done is I've never done any kind of funding cycle. We've been completely independent from day one. We make the decisions. We watch our market. We're not influenced in, you know, any way, shape or form by a giant bottom line decision and how we need to be living in this market. So that gives us a ton of autonomy and the ability to just navigate through this and, you know, grow production numbers and reduce production numbers easily. We're also not surplusing product, we're surplusing material. So we're not building, you know, 100,000 units, putting them into the market and hoping that they sell, oh wait, they didn't, we gotta ax the prices, you know, so on and so forth. We really wait for that demand to build. We build one-offs and or other small kind of niche things that are already purchased, like everything's built to order. So we're, we're not running into those issues, which can be a really quick way to get really underwater in this industry. And another big thing has been just marketing. Luckily, we came into this right as social media, all kinds of different internet driven marketing channels had become relatively affordable, if not cheap. I mean, free, you know, print media, stuff like that is slowly getting picked off piece by piece. And it's, I hate to see it because I grew up with it and I love it. But those were very, very expensive platforms to be in. And if you wanted that third party validation from let's say your, your powder magazine or your free skier magazine, it's, it's a big pain to play with the big boys on that. So we never played that game. We just kind of did this small grassroots growth, let the market dictate our growth. Didn't kind of chase our tails in that regard. And, and we've been just, silly lean the whole way through too, which I'm sure you got, you know, a pretty good feeling from that when you came through the facility, when I kept probably saying over and over again, that I hate outsourcing and I do no outsourcing whatsoever, right down to our own, you know, sticker production, t-shirt production, stuff like that. Like we, we keep it in house. (laughs) It's awesome. Well, and, and I would imagine the difference between being able to do this from a just in time inventory perspective versus potentially being drowning in, in a whole bunch of finished good inventory. I mean, that, that right there, gives you a, a ton of flexibility. Yeah. And allows you to focus on, uh, to your point, one-off high-end products. Hugely. And I guess another thing to kind of add into that, that has allowed us to stay really lean is manufacturing equipment, specifically to ski manufacturing is, is one, really, really hard to come by and two, very expensive. There's not a lot of companies that really supply this stuff and they've got a pretty big corner on the market. And so luckily enough, I happen to be a very mechanically inclined person that is capable of taking really old stuff and bringing it to life and making it better than the new stuff for very cheap. That's another big thing that I, I, I've seen small companies that are kind of similar to us go make a very large spend and neither it be you know, tuning equipment or, or grinding equipment of some variety or their pressing equipment. I, I, again, don't want to sound like a broken record, but we don't outsource anything, including that piece of it. We make our tools. And that's another thing that makes this very affordable from Folsom's perspective. Sure. Well, if, if uh, you're making your own tools, that's a, a hell of a moat for your business. <laughs> <laughs> Next step is just owning the ground that we, we operate on, which is a, a, a tough thing to pull off here in Denver. Flex and does quite expensive. Yeah. Mentioned running lean. How did you develop the principles for operating that way? Was it something that you picked up being in a manufacturing environment before, or was it something that you learned on the job? Combination of both. That's actually a great question. So I've always worked for small business. The biggest company that I ever worked for was that plastics company when I was very young and it was about 35 employees. And so that's, you know, small business and it was manufacturing. And so I got to see how there was just truly no slack created in anybody's workflow throughout their day and what, you know, deliverables were required out of these individuals, which, you know, I'm sure some people out there are not going to be happy that I say this, but the bigger the company gets, the more often that, that happens. You know, you find people that are 
not doing as much as they should. And small businesses just can't, can't afford that, you know, and, and, and it shows that much quicker. So I saw that early on from, you know, the plastics company. And then when I was flipping homes in, in Boulder, going to school at CU, I worked for a five person crew. Another thing where they're just like, if one guy's slacking, everybody else is having to pick up that, that extra bit. And so I've just always worked in these environments where there's an accountability structure that's just unmatched. You know, it's like nobody can kind of not carry their weight. Another thing to add in on that vein is I know, and I've worked every layer of my business. So I understand what it takes to do everything from the accounting side to the manufacturing side, to the marketing side, to the, the web development side. Sure. Am I not an expert in all those? Yeah. But I understand all of them at a very high level. And I, I can tell if somebody's kind of pulling the sheet over my eyes and saying, oh, it's going to take me a month. Like, no, no, no. So that's been one thing that kind of helped me carve out how I've developed this company. And then it's just been a need, you know, a real big need of here's what we have available to us. Here's the resources that we have how can we make these last for this amount of time, not relying on any kind of, you know, accounts payable. So, or accounts receivable, I suppose, but kind of a combination of those things and just really being in it. And, so, and on, honestly, <laughs> on a kind of negative side is I'm such a perfectionist that I have a very hard time really giving away stuff, you know, other roles and responsibilities within the business. So, I always feel like I need to master something before I can give it to, to another person kind of drives back to that. You know, like I know what the workload is. I know generally what it should cost from both a monetary side and a time side. And it's, it's allowed us to, to do that. And I've also been very diligent at watching my peers and just seeing kind of these unfortunate cycles of people entering the market and exiting the market in a relatively quick fashion it's a very sick, you know, circular coming in, spending too much money in either marketing or tooling or whatever, getting in bed with a different manufacturer, getting underwater with them, um, you know, whatever it may be. There's, there's these brands that unfortunately enter and exit the market every other year, every year. Uh, and it's quite predictable. And I've seen that from very early on and just kind of let them teach us like, hey, we can't do that. So how do you deal with that as you're scaling your business? You're clearly a highly competent, control-oriented person, but you can't do all the things all the time. And I think every entrepreneur, regardless of the business that they're in, at some point is, is dealing with that principal agent paradox. You just want more yourselves, but you can't have that. So how do you identify when you pass something off to, to somebody else versus keep it as a function that you're focused on? Yeah, so honestly, it was around... 2015 that I had a member enter my team that really opened my eyes to that. You know, it's, it's really easy to just not recognize that when you're small and when you're kind of just doing everything, you're just, you know, stuck in that working in the business, not on the business situation. And I was certainly there in 2015, I was trying to do everything and I was doing a couple things really well. And I enjoyed a couple things. And then there was a lot of it that I just really disliked. And I would just do what, you know, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do the bare minimum here. Specifically finance. That's not something I enjoy even kind of, but I know how important that is to having a successful business. And that would be, you know, kind of the first thing that this individual, Max, who's Max Tabor, he's my COO now. He really came to the table fresh out of a school. He's from DU, had an MBA and a mechanical engineering degree, super bright kid and like outspoken kind of in my face about it. Like, yo man, like you have a lot going on here and you're crushing it, but here's what I can do. And that was the first kind of eye-opening experience of like getting somebody in that brought some new structure to it and took off a lot of the tasks that I was not super excited to do. I'll speed that up a couple years. I really leaned into the I want to understand everything very well and then find a good person to place them in this, this position. And I've been very lucky in that regard. I have a great small team that just has really taken over the heavy, heavy lifting of it and has allowed me to kind of recoil and do what I find 
is my best use of time in the company, which is looking at infrastructure of the systems, you know, how to really do the engineering side of, of building how the skis are actually put together. I'm not assembling them. I haven't built a ski in, I don't know, maybe eight months. I'll do it for fun every once in a while just to make sure stuff's working. But I don't do that side of things anymore. I'm, I'm building the big tooling side, the system side, and it's been a, a unique kind of evolution for me to, to be able to recognize that, find the right person, then trust them and really pass that off. Also, just big life experiences have forced a hand. You know, I've got a kid coming. Um, now I've, uh, my, my wife and I are due in October. And that is, that, that has, that has uh, forced the hand in a big way. We're already talking about it, you know, at least weekly within the company of like, okay, what's this going to look like <laughs> taking Mike out of here at the busiest time of the year, you know, October, November, December, January, February, like peaking. So I'm excited to put all this hard work in the summer and give it off to the team. And they're, they're ready, you know? They're ready. They 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 want to prove that they like get out of here, Mike. You don't need to do anything. You're, you know that's super Just, cool. Go have some fun. Let's ski. Go hang out with your kid. Yeah, stuff like that. So yeah, it's it, it it's a strange thing, and it's it's funny to see it in other entrepreneurs because I've kind of been through all the cycles, <laughs> and now I can recognize them in a better way. I forget. I read a book a number of years back that I really had wished I had read right at the beginning of this because it just laid out every step of that entrepreneurial kind of experience in such a clear way and I was like well that was 2011 that was 2013 <laughs> but would you be able to make use of that book had you not lived through it you know that's a good question honestly doubtfully you know I, I, I am notoriously hard-headed I find that there's as I go through life there's so many things that I've I've read in the past or advice that I've gotten in the past where it clicks when I go through something and I say oh that's that's what that means but it it takes living some life to kind of illuminate what those what those lessons are really about yeah well put well put I mean that's nail on the head I don't think it would have served me in nearly as as strong of a way as it you know, did actually going through all those steps, feeling like an author. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Since you make everything in your business or, or so many of the things and you're super vertically integrated, are there ways that you think about it? So you're not reinventing the wheel or, you know, thinking about, boy, is there, is there an OEM solution here that might be cheaper, easier, or are there methodologies that are maybe have been proven in the industry before? Yeah, actually, this will probably be a decent answer, but a little bit off cuff from what you just asked. It's actually something that I use in kind of my marketing speak all the time is that that old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm not influenced by, you know, marketing teams telling me I need to reinvent the wheel to be able to sell brand new product that may or may, may, or may not be better. It may be worse. It may be better depending on where marketing wants to spin this and how you know, engineering can get there and then how can production pull this off? And, you know, there's, there's so many conversations with these bigger scale companies, whereas we are truly vertically integrated and this product's coming from a couple guys talking about it to really me executing it and then putting it out there, rediscussing it with the team and uh, then ultimately, you know, being happy with what we put out there. So I, I hate to say it like that, but we do, from just a fundamental how we look at the business is, you know, if this is relevant and working well, we're not changing this. If this is working well for so many different clients and kind of our bread and butter, like we don't need to shake this up and change it just to have some new buzzwords to tie to this. So that's one piece of it. As far as like not reinventing the wheel, but sort of reinventing the wheels constant, constantly in my engineering side. So how can I make systems more efficient? What kind of I call them widgets or, you know, jigs, what kind of small tools can I build to put in my shop that are going to make certain tasks that much more easily executable with that much more precise, precise execution. And so I'm constantly doing that. And that's actually what I'm doing right now. Cyber months are always in improvements and how like that, that, that's what my majority of myself and my staff focus on for really most of June and most of July 
is how can we rebuild this system and make it more effective? How can we make it easier to onboard somebody? Unfortunately, there's a couple seasonal jobs in, in the business that are pretty heavy turnover. And they're really important, really, really important to the product. A lot of it, and you know, on the tune side and kind of that first experience that the customer is going to have touching and skiing that ski, we put all the hard work in manufacturing it. But then when it comes to finishing it is when the true blue collar side comes in. And unfortunately, we see a lot of turnover seasonally because we don't need it all 12 months. And it, it, it's really a, you know, a pretty big bell. So how can we make those systems easier to teach, easier to onboard, more effective in that light. So in that sense, yes, we are reinventing the wheel almost yearly on that. Like, okay. Does the seasonality of your business ever make you want to think about expanding into summer sports or doing anything like that? Or is it just sort of ingrained in your strategy? So we have considered it in years past and I actually incorporated under a different name and then do business as Folsom Custom Skis specifically for that, if I wanted to kind of branch out and have some different brands, a little bit more specific to other markets. The quick answer is yes, we're seasonable or seasonal, but not really like we're busy building skis 12 months of the year. We just have a little bit more time in the summer to focus on other stuff. Whereas, you know, your, your October, November, all the way through really the tail end of March or, or mid April, depending on, you know, what Springs kind of bring in with the weather patterns. We're just so busy with custom building and, you know, customer relations and just kind of keeping up with all of that, that it's just like all hands on deck. And my guys that are traditionally finishing skis in the summer don't have time for that in the winter. So that's, we're seasonal, but not really like, we, we, we build a handful less skis every single week, starting really mid-May. But you take, you know, 30% of production out of a week, and it gives us a surplus of time to focus on some other stuff. Got it. Well, you launched the business in one global crisis, and you recently lived through another with COVID. What was that like? I, you know, I know a lot of the ski resorts got shut down March of 2020. How did you navigate the business through that? And, and what did that look like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the initial shutdown in March, 2020, you know, whatever that was, March 17th or whenever was honestly one of the hardest days of my life when I had to like physically get told to remove myself and my team from my shop and send them remotely. And I'm like turning the lights out, walking home that are getting in the car that night. And I'm just like so depressed and worried and already thinking about exit strategies and just like, how are we going to live? We're already like, we need this momentum into the summer. What is this going to look like? And it was, it was hard not to kind of dwell on that and be like, man, we're, we're just gonna, we're going to have to call it. Like I can't afford to, to float this thing for eight months, 10 months, 12 months, 17 months, whatever. So I shut the shop down for two weeks completely, sent all my core staff home and said, okay, guys, let's go to SOP time and just write out everything we can to SOP every single step of what this business is in document form and really kind of build those corporate documents that small businesses don't have oftentimes. You know, trying to make best use of, of my really talented staff's time that I can. And so we dug into that for two weeks and almost immediately I saw other manufacturers picking up PPE manufacturing. So building face shields, plexiglass partitions, uh, you know, just other big demand items uh, for the, the COVID pandemic. And so we pivoted right away. Two weeks later, we became essential. Game back on at the shop. We built 5,000 face masks in two weeks, three weeks. I think it was two and a half weeks. So big shield face masks, not the actual cloth ones, like the big, you know, hard plastic ones that were meant to, to make the N95s last longer, really, for medical staff. And that was kind of our entrance to the market. And we did that really as a break-even model. We didn't, we, we wanted to keep our lights on. We wanted to keep our guys fed. And we wanted to supply you know, a big need for our community that needed these things, these first 
you know, first responders not being able to get these and N95s being so hard for them to get, putting that simple shield over the front of them is going to block, you know, any kind of splatter or anything that would hit them to make them last three times as long. So we did that. And then after about two and a half weeks of that, we quickly transitioned into doing uh, a more specific one for dentists and other people that needed a little light under their lens. It's called a loops compatible shield. So we did a couple thousand of those in another short period of time, which it was cool, but it was, it was kind of a rough transition from like fun, cool product manufacturing to like straight, almost, I hate to say it like sweatshop, like these guys. And it was like hot in the summer and <laughs> We're just sitting in there doing the same thing, like a thousand units a day. Like it's, it was ridiculous, but we knocked these out. We got them out into the market. And then actually Max, my COO came up with this idea. He's like, look, man, like our CNC seems more appropriate. Our, our computer driven router it seems more appropriate to like kind of build these partitions for like point of sales and, you know, hospitals and any kind of like customer, you know, separation. So we dove into that market and that one went nuts because we're small and nimble and we could do custom installations on the fly and product development on the fly. So we got a bunch of big partners with that one, like Evo. They've got a bunch of brick and mortars. They're, they're a, a outdoor retailer. We did all their boot fitting stations to get them ready for the season, every brick and mortar in the U S. So that was huge. We did like got a bunch of universities ready with their food courts. We got a whole bunch of hospitals and primary care facilities set up to actually interact with people more safely. We, we took care of local restaurants, you know, stuff like that. And so that was like that in, end of it, but also anything and everything outdoor related went nuts last summer, like nuts. So on top of that, we had a record breaking you know, ski manufacturing and, and, and ski sale summer through it. So it started with like one of the lowest lows I've ever experienced in my own personal life of just like, holy cow, there's 13 years down the drain because of a sickness. Like, oh gosh, you know, like what in the world, but just like, boom, now we're doing all this cool stuff. And it's actually really entertaining because it's not just ski manufacturing anymore. Like we're doing all this other stuff. It brought the sickness a little closer to us as well. You know, it's, it's easy to kind of just look from the outside in. And if you're not in healthcare, it's hard to understand what those people were dealing with and actually like showing up with 500 face shields to these hospitals. These people were so, so, so thankful. So that was cool. And then ski sales have just kept strong ever since we, we've been up and, you know, like I said, kind of anything and everything outdoor related has had banner years because big travel out of the picture, everybody's just digging into their local their local things and also trying to support local economies. So smaller local companies really, really did well through this, including Folsom. That's awesome. Was there a point of friction where you were kind of transitioning from plexiglass and, and face shields to going back to skis? Yeah, it was really November. And I kept having these contracts come in that I just couldn't say no to. And it turned into just me doing it all. And because I my team was like, you guys can only do skis now. And I am the one that has to focus on all of this so that your guys' bandwidth isn't getting interrupted whatsoever. And at that point, I noticed just like my general communication with, you know, my, my, my core customer group and, and really just my level of keeping up on that end of the business, the ski side, was starting to not be as, as strong as it should be. So I finally cut the cord. It, I think it was like November 15. I was just like, I can't do this anymore. This is the last contract. We're tying it up. And we had a couple other, you know, requests at that point, but we were game on literally with record breaking weeks, back to back to back to back to back, moving into ski sales and manufacturing. So it was, it was the best we could do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an incredible story of pivoting. It were, was the essential manufacturing, was that something that you guys were throughout because you were making the PPE and, and you could just take that into skis? We were actually essential right off the bat and I didn't even realize it. So I technically didn't need to close the shop for two weeks, but as you well know, and everybody else in this world knew, like it was such an unknown time and I was not going to be the sore thumb. <laughs> so I shut things down. But since we had orders that with, with like, promised deliverable dates spanning through that we were essential 
And since we were making them, we weren't just collecting these orders and redistributing them. And I didn't realize that until like a month after the fact. But honestly, I'm very happy for those two weeks of everybody going home. My wife and I fighting for our one office, just like actually building some corporate documents that the company, you know, really did need and, and has been served already way by. Classic entrepreneurial move is just uh, dealing dealing with what you got. Yep. <laughs> Keep people busy. Yeah. Was there a lot of new different types of skis in demand with COVID? I know the skis I got from you were getting into touring and doing more backcountry stuff. Did you see a lot of that sort of thing? Yep. So that side of the market grew drastically with the unknown of our lifts going to turn back on and, and actually, you know, our lifts going to be spinning for the 2021, 2022 season, sorry, 2020, 2021 season, nobody knew and nobody would give us any straight answers from the top down from, you know, top brass at Vail resorts, which I, I have been in this industry to be able to talk to these people and nobody would give us a clear answer. So everybody including myself and consumers started saying well we want to go ski this season fitness is a good thing so why don't we tour so we saw our specific touring market we sold more touring skis this season than we did in the last four years combined big spike big big spike so that was one big thing we also saw our beginner market grow which I didn't anticipate just more people like, Hey, I can go do this. I'm going to go do this. And I would rather spend money with you than, you know, whomever. So we saw that side grow, but overwhelmingly the touring market blew up and it wasn't just us. It was the entire, the entire market to the point where those bindings, you know, those specialty bindings that you had, like they became kind of what lumber is right now. Like, like by, what it was like maybe late December, early January, they became almost impossible to find. And they were like selling for like five X what they were bought for. <laughs> were raw materials or supply chains a challenge for you at all? So right away, not a huge one. And then, yeah, the ripple effects and we're still experiencing them in a, in a pretty major way, but yeah, we had some, some issues. Luckily, most of what I source is stateside. There's only a couple items that I have to get from, you know, Europe specifically. Those became a challenge. You know, there were some shipping embargoes and some protesting and some shutdowns there that affected that in a pretty negative way. Uh, luckily enough, they force very large minimums on those purchases. So I was surplused up pretty good. So I was, I was protected and it, it kind of didn't hit me until honestly about a month ago. But we saw some weird stuff like, that plexiglass, when we got into that, that turned into a hilarious game that I never figured I'd be playing, like calling all these different manufacturers all over the country and just like trying to play chess with who's got this, you know, quarter inch acrylic, who's got this quarter inch, you know, polypropylene, whatever it may be that we're trying to source from them. And every time you get them on the phone, they're just kind of laughing at you like, oh, yeah, that truck's, that's already bought out. So that was specific to the PPE side, but on the ski side, it was it didn't hit us up front, but it's now actually starting to hit us pretty heavily. Is everything outdoor related has been so high? You know, this is includes RVs and and, and bikes and you know, kind of anything and everything in that regard. And so, like composites and epoxies are very heavy in all of those industry. So we use that a lot. We've found a pretty big issue with us keeping up on on our supply on that. And then specifically lumber has been a very, very, very tough one on us. I would imagine. Yeah. You guys lived uh, through an interesting time. We all did, but I love hearing the stories of uh, businesses leaning into the COVID pandemic and figuring out a way to make it work. As you look back in the last 13 plus years running Folsom Customs, what do you think is the most difficult lesson that you've had to learn? So I kind of touched on this earlier and I'll reiterate it to any kind of hopeful entrepreneur out there. Know your stuff when it comes to finance. Do not let that go away. That was the biggest, hardest smack in the face I, I got was I was never a finance professional. I didn't really have the correct ones around me to really support just 
you know, getting in my face, like, Hey, you need to look at this and understand what's going on and where your money's coming and going. That was the singular biggest mistake that I made was, you know, just being a very scientific engineering minded individual that just didn't even kind of consider that side of the business and just figured, Hey, all that's just going to fall into place. You know, we got a good product, good customer service. The rest will be easy. No, have a good finance professional that you trust. Take the time to figure it out. Mike, what's the future for Folsom Customs besides you uh, taking a step back as you become a father? So really in the near future is we are doing that expansion, which I'm thrilled about. And, you know, taking the company from or the, the facility from about 5,000 to about almost 8,000 square feet. Really to drive back to what I had said earlier is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We've got a very unique business model that serves a very good purpose in this market of having a higher, more personalized, you know, experience, not only from the product side, but the customer service side. I just want to continue to grow that organically. I don't want to get stuck in that race to the bottom scenario that I see all these other companies get into. So I want to stay you know, true to the ideals of what this business was really founded on. And I want to continue to build a better ski every single year. You know, I don't want to go in the other direction. So that's kind of what's new for us is we're, we're really focusing on the infrastructure of how we build our skis and just how we can continue to hone our craft, how we can become more accessible to more people, how we can be, become less intimidating you know, a, a custom product again can be in, you know, a thing where it's just like, oh, that's just experts. We, we really want to navigate past that hurdle. And then other than that, like, I really want to take a step back, you know, and this is, this is not in a short term because I have a kid coming now. Like I really, I think I've built the business and my team to a really suitable spot to where I can really just jump out and in at my pleasure <laughs> love it which is exciting. Well, that's, that's the dream right <laughs> yeah that's why i was able to run home on the you know flick of the wrist when i forget my laptop and am late to this recording session so sorry about that <laughs> very cool no worries well i appreciate you making the time if people want to find you reach out learn more about Folsom customs what's the best way to do that best way is just through our website just www.folsomskis.com it's got all of our social integrated right on that front page. And then if you just go to the, the company team page, it's got my email, which is very easy. Mike at Folsomskis.com. And I'm very diligent on that. So that's really the, the best singular sources. Go look at our, our, our skis. Go look at our website. You know, see what we do. We've got a very good educational website. And uh, follow us on Instagram. It's a lot of good ski porn on there. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Mike. Really appreciate the time today. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise, Michael. It was a good conversation. Take care. Yep. You too, man. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.